casket was brought through the inner doors of the church, the great organ burst into sound and the silence of death seemed to fall over the gathering. So here we are at her funeral, nearly a month after her murder? Yeah, and this is the place to be in 1905. The woman whose death has saddened Covered millions. with a pall of fragrant California violets, the effulgent beams of the bright sun shone through the rich glass The gold windows. of the gorgeously decorated galleries thronged to their utmost with mourning students. Almost 3,000 men and 3,000 eyes were fixed upon the violet-covered The castle. choir joined with the deep-toned organ. Not a minute was lost, not a hitch occurred. Wow. Quite the funeral. The way it's described in these old articles, it's like the death of a saint. It's funny you should say that. Reverend Dinsmore, who gives the memorial address at Jane's funeral, says she was in close and vital touch with whatever was pure, good, and holy. And look at this. He goes on to liken her characteristics to those of God. This angelic portrayal of Jane is apparent in other reflections on her life. David Starr Jordan referred to her in his book, saying that she was one of the bravest, wisest, most patient, most courageous, and most devout of all women who have ever lived. And look, he even goes on to say that if his book is successful, it will expose the real Jane as a lone, sad figure of the mother of the university, strong in her trust in God and in her loyalty to her husband's purposes. These accounts really do reflect the matriarch that Jane is at Stanford today. But is this figure that we know today, is this the real Jane Stanford? Jane grew up in Albany, New York, in a fairly strict and controlling household. Her mother preached to Jane and her sisters the values of domesticity, motherhood, and marriage. So she was raised to be a typical Victorian age woman? Yeah, she epitomized the classic Victorian matron. She believed in obedience, purity of affection, and her career of choice would ultimately be marriage. She even left school after the seventh grade to care for her ailing father. So, this woman without a formal education is the founder of Stanford University? Yeah, pretty much. And she saw the education she did get as more of an opportunity lost than gained. Jane felt that her time would have been better spent in the house helping her mother. But how much power and control did she actually have over the creation of Stanford? Quite a bit, actually. Especially after her husband, Leland Sr., died. This is quite unusual for women at this time to have this much power, right? For the most part, yes. At the time, it was typical for wealthy women to carry on their husband's endeavors after their deaths. Upon first glance, she was just continuing her husband's vision. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Well, she had her own visions for the university that went beyond those of Leland. I talked to Stanford archaeologist Laura Jones, and she had this to say. Jane Stanford does not appear to have felt that she needed Leland Sr.'s authority to act. And she asserted her power even when all of her male advisors tried to intervene. By the time Leland Sr. died, people were encouraging her to close the university. And Jane Stanford basically just told them, thank you for advice, but I'm, I'm going to continue on. She just decided she was going to do it. She sounds like a very strong and opinionated woman, not super traditional at all. That's true. At the same time, though, this unusual behavior was motivated by her maternal nature. To her, the university was primarily a memorial to Leland Jr. She must have felt that her authority came from her grief as a devoted mother. 
Speaking of her grief, I noticed that in articles after Jane's death, her grief is presented as a very positive, constructive force, something that gave her motivation. The memories of the past and the shades of the blessed dead filled her heart. In the loneliness of her childlessness and widowhood, this was the central and supreme ambition of her soul, to found a great university. Her grief is depicted more as a longing for the past, for happy memories. And Reverend Dinsmore mourns the fact that Jane couldn't have died in Palo Alto. Where no doubt many of the sweetest associations of her life had their center. Is it not? Is it not haunted ground? Yes, it is haunted, this quiet, fair scene. Fair as it looks and all softly green. Yet fear thou not, for the spell is thrown and the might of the shadows on me alone. That's what she carved on a memorial for Leland Jr. in Palo Alto. Wow, that doesn't sound like one of the sweetest associations of her life. Yeah, she sounds pretty miserable. Palo Alto had its happy memories, but it also was a constant reminder of the son that was taken from her. She was haunted by the past. Jane Stanford went into mourning in 1884 and never left. This is Laura Jones again. And she wore all black for the rest of her life. Her grief seems much darker than it's depicted in memorial addresses and newspaper articles. It was. It shook her to the core and made her re-examine many aspects of her life. Oh, like her religion. What do you mean? Reverend Dinsmore praised Jane for her exceedingly Catholic faith. How did she re-examine her religion? The death of Leland Jr. led Jane to someone with unorthodox religious beliefs. Who? Dr. J.P. Newman delivered the memorial address at the memorial services of Leland Stanford Jr. Dr. Newman, a renowned preacher, spoke at Leland Jr.'s funeral. But the thing is, he's a vocal and active spiritualist. Spiritualism being... It actually takes the methods of science and applies them for the purposes of faith. Maria Chihosh, a PhD student at Stanford University, explains that it's about... Science actually becoming a helper to talking to the dead. So what does Dr. Newman do? Contact Leland Jr.? Well, he tries at least. He leads seances that Jane and Bertha attend together. Jane felt alienated from her existing faith. She lost the sense that there was maybe a logic or a reason as to why things happen, or that there wasn't a benevolent God looking out for people. So Jane became a skeptic after her son's death? She wasn't a complete skeptic, but she began to really want proof that Leland was in a better place. She wouldn't have to reject her faith in any total way. She would just be adding this component of speaking to the dead on Earth. She became known at the time for her spiritualist activities. Didn't she attend seances pretty regularly? Yeah, and she even pushed for the development of a psychic research department at Stanford. It became a major part of her life. This interest began in 1883 after Leland Jr.'s death and lasted until her death in 1905. But where was it in her eulogy, in her biographies? It kind of vanished. David Starr Jordan dismissed Jane's interest as purely academic, and Bertha Burner breezes over it, saying it was a short-lived fascination. But they were both close with Jane. Why would they erase this part of her identity? That's a great question that we really don't have the answer to. Why were Jane's experiences with spiritualism covered up? 
So, this Jane, she seems quite far from the one talked about in eulogies, articles, and books. She wasn't really this ideal model that the university wanted. She wasn't this perfect, angelic figure. She was much more complex, much more flawed. And not flawed in a bad way. More like in a real way, in an ordinary person kind of way. And here we are at her tomb. It's such a beautiful monument. A Roman-style mausoleum made entirely of marble. Inside, three massive marble tombs dominate the room, dwarfing us and making the Stanfords feel larger than life. Jane L. Stanford, born in mortality August 25th, 1828, passed to immortality February 28th, 1905. Passed to immortality. What an interesting way to put it. Well, she does live on, both through the university and this mystery. Okay, now we know more about Jane and the woman she was. But who would want to kill her? 